Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 17, uh, beginning at verse 20. We're going to read, it's on page 1540. Uh, I'll read that text in just a few minutes. Uh, first, let me introduce things a little bit. Um, as you heard a number of times, today is Ascension Sunday. Um, and I really do think that Ascension Sunday is one of the most important things and one of the most important realities that we celebrate in the church. I think it should, in our minds, I believe it should be right up there with Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. It is just that important. Um, we've picked up on a number of the themes, okay, so far about what it means that Christ has ascended. And this morning we're going to talk about a couple others um, in Romans chapter 8, it says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took his seat at the right hand of the Father, and at the right hand of the Father, he is uh, making intercession for us. Intercession is a fancy word for prayer. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying for us. Now, um, I encourage you to do this later today. Uh, take out your Bibles and read Romans chapter 8. Not now, do it later. Uh, if you were to read the entire chapter of Romans 8, um, you would see that the whole thing kind of plays out like a courtroom drama. The whole thing has to do with the law. Who has kept the law? Who has not kept the law? Who has broken the law? What is the punishment for those who have broken the law? And so in, in, in Romans chapter 8, it's kind of like we're on trial a little bit. And uh, we're on trial for breaking the law, and God the Father is the judge, and he's the one who's going to make the judgment about whether or not we're guilty or innocent. But then, our lawyer walks into the room. And when our lawyer walks into the room, the judge's face lights up, and he says, no way. And he throws one leg over the bench, and then he throws the other leg over the bench, and he runs over to our lawyer, and he wraps himself around his body, and he says, my son, my son, my son, my son is here. And he starts weeping, and he's shouting out at the top of his lungs about his deep, deep love and appreciation for his son, for our lawyer. And we're sitting there going, this is looking better and better all the time, Right? We're in a courtroom. God the Father is the judge. And Jesus, his son, is our attorney. We are the clients. This is a very, very good development for us. Because the judge runs over to his son and he says, What can I do for you? And our lawyer says, Let me tell you about my clients. And he intercedes for us. And he speaks to the Father on our behalf. And this is really good news. Now, this is where John chapter 17 comes in. John chapter 17 is the longest and best example that we have in Scripture about what Jesus prays for when it comes for us. So why is Jesus in heaven? One of the reasons Jesus is in heaven is because he's at the right hand of the Father and he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. What on earth is Jesus praying for for us? John chapter 17 is the best answer to that question. 
So in John chapter 17, it all takes place on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Um, Most scholars think it probably happened during the the Passover, during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, And somebody, John, was paying very close attention to everything that Jesus prayed for for us. And he writes it down. So... Here we are on Ascension Sunday, knowing that Jesus is the right hand at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for us. It's not a huge stretch of the imagination to imagine that today, this is exactly what Jesus is praying for for us. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his 12 disciples. My prayer is not for my 12 disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, Jesus prays, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given Me, because you have loved me before the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So there it is. Jesus ascends to heaven, takes the seat at the right hand of the Father, and begins to pray on our behalf, and this is what he prays for. That we would be one. What does that mean? What does it mean that the church of Christ would be one? Just as the Father and the Son are one. So people have interpreted this and imagined this in a lot of different ways over the years. Um, For a long time, and even until pretty recently, there was a movement in the church uh, that believed that, you know, what it really meant for the church to be one meant that we needed to kind of throw down all of our denominational walls and all of our congregational walls, and we needed to all merge. There needed to be a giant merger in uh, Christendom, and uh, we would do away with denominations, and we would all kind of be the same church. That movement has fizzled out for all of the reasons that you can imagine, okay? But uh, this is pretty recent. Even in the last hundred years or so, a a lot of the mainline Protestant churches in America tried to do this, but it never really happened. Is that what it would mean for us to be one? To merge all of our denominations together? I don't think so. In fact, Tim Keller has a really great line about this. He says, says, you know, Amazon just bought Whole Foods, They merged, right? Is anyone looking at them and saying, behold how they love one another? (laughs) No. No, they're not. Merging 
together wouldn't necessarily mean that the church would be one. And it's, it's not that Jesus wants us all to kind of come under the same church polity. It's not that he wants us to all come under the same church order. He's talking about something much more significant than that. What Jesus prays in his prayer to the Father is that they may be one just as we are one. How are the Father and the Son one. Well, spoiler alert, in two weeks it's Trinity Sunday, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. But for now, suffice it to say that the Father and the Son, even though they are different persons of God, they are indivisible from each other. They are indivisible from each other. There is, there is no breaking them down any further. It's sort of like the periodic table of elements. When we call something an element, it means that that thing can't be divided or can't be broken down into any other substance. Hydrogen is hydrogen because it contains nothing more and nothing less than hydrogen. It can't be broken down any further. The same is true in the life of the Trinity. It is elemental. There's no more separating that you can do. There's no more subdivisions. Uh, uh, there's no dividing it. There's no further breaking it down. Jesus is praying that the same would be true of his followers. That we would be indivisibly connected to each other. We might be different individuals, and we might be part of different congregations, and those congregations might be part of different denominations and so on, but the prayer of Jesus is that we would be fundamentally and elementally indivisible from one another. Jesus wants us to be so connected that we are one just as he and the Father are one. That's pretty connected. But the implication here is that we need to be connected across what makes us different from each other. And that's hard. So this is not just a congregational thing, if only. <laughs> and this is not just a denominational thing. This is also a race thing. And this is also a cultural thing. And this is also a sexuality thing. And this is also a socioeconomic thing. We need to be connected to each other across all of those, at times, very deep, very significant chasms. I really, really hope that you noticed, okay? The last few weeks, we just finished up this sermon series called Backwards Faith. And if you heard some of those sermons, I want you to think about some of those lectionary texts and the sermons uh, that they were based on. Did you notice a theme in any of those sermons? Did you notice a theme in any of those stories? In more than a few of them, something like this happens. There's a dominant culture or a dominant ethnicity which surrenders their privilege for the sake of the non-dominant, under-resourced community. Let me say that again. There's a dominant culture or a dominant community 
which surrenders its privilege for the sake of the non-dominant and under-resourced communities. Jesus prays, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. I recently heard the story of a Bosnian man who had fled as a refugee to America uh, in the early 90s because of the Bosnian conflict there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a good number of Bosnian Americans in West Michigan who all came about 30 years ago because of the war, uh, which is a wonderful thing. This particular man, um, whose story I heard, is not not a Christian believer, but he said something in his story that really humbles me as a Christian believer. He said, he said, you know, since I've come to America, I've really gotten into American politics. He says, American politics is absolutely fascinating. And he says, you know, since I've gotten here, you know, I, I kind of studied your left in America, and I've kind of studied your right, and he says, I've figured out that I'm a Democrat. But he says, you know what? Republicans and Democrats here in America really hate each other. <laughs> he says, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. But he says, I'll tell you this. He says, if I meet a, he says, I'm a Democrat. He says, if I meet a Bosnian who's a Republican, politics do not matter. And somebody asked him, why is that? Why is it that suddenly politics don't matter? And the Bosnian man said, because we Bosnians have been through life and death together. We have been through life and death together. And I'm thinking, can't the same thing be said of those of us who are in Christ Jesus? That we've been through life and death together? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to minimize the horrors of the Bosnian War. Okay? So, to some degree, we are talking about apples and oranges here. Because those folks had to run for their lives. And that makes this a little bit different. But I think we still have something to learn from this man's perspective. Can't the same thing be said of us? That those of us who found ourselves dead in our transgressions and sins, like if we really did, those of us who found ourselves dead in our transgressions and sins, and then we're once again made alive in Christ Jesus, can't the same thing be said of us? who Sunday after Sunday confess our sins to each other and to God and then find healing in the waters of baptism, can't the same thing be said of us that we have been through life and death together? Jesus says, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. I came across a thing that Tim Keller did a number of years ago in which he listed from a historical perspective some of the ways in which the early church was one together. And I think they're really helpful. He lists a few. I'm going to list three 
And I want us to wonder what these things might look like for us. Here they are, all three. We'll talk about them in detail a little bit, but here's all three. Number one, the early church was one in their possessions. Number two, the early church was one in speaking the truth. And number three, the early church was one in sharing their failures. So first of all, the early church was one in sharing their possessions. This is in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, it says that no one claimed that any of their, in the early church, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. So there is, this is this little snapshot into this radical open-handedness that brought the church together in the first century. A radical open-handedness. A radical sharing of resources. Um, you know, everyone has their least favorite Bible passages. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and if you don't, if you haven't found your least favorite Bible passage, I wonder if you've even read the Bible. Everyone has their least favorite Bible uh, passages. This is one uh, piece of scripture that is most unfortunate for radical capitalists. It just is. This is a least favorite verse for radical capitalists because a radical capitalist says, this is mine. I earned it. It belongs to me. And the church says, you're wrong, and that's not going to fly here. This is a hard one for us. Now, it's not, hear me clearly, it's not the case that there was no such thing as personal property in the early church. That's not the case. If you read the text, it's clear there is personal property. But it was the case that there was nothing that anyone had that anyone else couldn't count on. There is nothing that anyone had that anyone else couldn't count on. This, was a, this is a hard one for us, okay? The early church was one in their possessions. Secondly, the early church was one in speaking the truth. This one comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, uh, where Paul writes about speaking the truth in love to one another. Speaking the truth in love. Uh, this is one of the fundamental operating principles for true Christian community, that we must be speaking the truth in love to one another. We need to be telling each other the truth, the biblical truth about God and about each other, and about the world. And then, of course, <laughs> the unspoken implication of this is that we need to be listening to one another in love, which is the hard part. Who doesn't like this verse? Well, <laughs> this is a particularly hard verse for dominant cultures. This is a particularly hard verse for those of us who find themselves in power. This is a particularly hard verse for those of us 
Look, if you were here uh, last week or you tuned in online last week, the story of Cornelius, right? If Cornelius doesn't speak the truth to Peter, what happens with the Gentiles? They never enter the church. If Cornelius doesn't speak the truth to Peter, and even worse, if Peter never listens, what is the church? Wouldn't be here today, I can promise you that. The church was one in speaking the truth and listening to the truth together. Number three, the church was one in sharing their failures. The church was one in sharing their failures. Uh, The two most influential leaders in the New Testament church, Peter and Paul, were also, arguably, the two most flawed leaders in the New Testament church. Both of those men were very, very familiar with failure. What do we do with our failure in the church? I've observed a trend lately, and I'm not speaking about this congregation necessarily, but more American evangelicalism, and this is just anecdotal. I've observed, observed a trend of sweeping under rugs. I've observed a trend of tweaking images, hiding managing things, rebranding things, or making excuses for, th- for things. What do we do with failure in the church? Do we make excuses for it? Or do we confront it and learn from it? We will make mistakes. We will disappoint one another. <laughs> We have disappointed one another. Can I get an amen? Amen. We need to show one another grace. We will make mistakes. We will disappoint one another. We need to make changes and corrections, and we need to show one another grace. This particular one is particularly hard for those of us who are perfectionists or play one in church or for those of us who struggle to live in the tension of conflict and disagreement a mark of unity in the church is not that we agree on everything but that we can dialogue about everything and we can listen to one another about everything and that we can grow and we can learn from each other in everything even while we don't agree on everything. We share our failures with one another and we share our areas of growth with one another. For more than 2,000 years, the New Testament has, uh, church has proven that we can incorporate our failures and we can turn those failures into wisdom. We can turn our failures into wisdom. And by we, I mean the Holy Spirit through miracles in our hearts. Today is Ascension Sunday. 
Our Lord has ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God, and this means everything for us. What is the state of the church today? Two things. One is that we're in court. But it turns out that the judge and our lawyer are in cahoots. (laughs) So we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. The other, secondly, is that we have some repair work to do. We have some failures to own up to. And some apologies to offer. And some grace to extend. And some serious listening to do. But this is nothing new for us. This is nothing new for us. We have been in an incredibly hard season together. It has been, folks, an incredibly hard season for us. But we've been through life and death together. Spiritually and literally, we have been through life and death together. And in Christ we will continue to, be through, to go through life and death together. And we will continue to confess our sins. We will be here 9.30 every Sunday morning confessing our sins and remembering the healing offered to us in the sacrament of baptism. We'll be here every week. And whenever possible, as much as it depends on us, we will embody the Spirit of unity that is modeled for us by the ascended king of the universe. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray to you as you pray to the Father on our behalf. Take our meager prayers, Lord Jesus. Perfect them and purify them and show them to our Father. Take our meager efforts to listen to one another and to forgive one another and to understand one another. Perfect them, purify them, And show them to our Father. We trust the good work that you're doing here among us, Lord Jesus. We look forward to celebrating the coming of your Spirit next week. And with great hope for unity, we step forward in faith. In your precious name we pray. Amen.